Welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Mission Impossible Fallout, the sequel to 2015's uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, but in the larger picture, the sixth of all the Mission Impossible movies, but probably the first one that's a direct sequel, which is an interesting thing to talk about. And uh, joining me today is Fred Cobb. Fred, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. Currently in mourning about the slow demise of MoviePass, but... Yes. Luckily, there are good movies out there to watch to distract me from that. Well, ironically enough, this isn't one of them. Um, so yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who knows when – I mean I honestly have no idea. Like out of the friends I have and the other whoever, other – whoever else listens to these, I don't know who has seen it because so many of the people that I talk to that I'm constantly interacting with about movies do use MoviePass. And you were on the previous podcast where we all talked about the different situations people were going through. And it does vary from city to city, but one constant is uh, – they uh, can't watch this one on MoviePass yet, so I think a lot of people are waiting. So who knows? Maybe I'll have to like re- re-promote this in two weeks once MoviePass takes it off its restricted list, and then everyone will start seeing it again. And then I'll be like, all right, hey, listen to that podcast I did two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and and that just, that's my end to being what I do. Yeah, and it's not one of those uh, FOMO movies where you have to see it the first weekend. Otherwise, you have to worry about getting spoiled. It's not like Star Wars. This is the kind of movie you can watch two or three weeks after it's out. And there's a good chance you won't have stumbled across any important information. Yeah, and I mean, there's like, like literally, I can think of two things in this entire movie you could actually spoil, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to that later. But it's pretty, it's it's more just about watching the set pieces and having a fun time, and and hopefully you get something out of the story too, which is, uh, I'd say, it's varying degrees of effective from all these movies. But uh, first, I want to ask you because I think a big reason that I a, a big factor in my uh, watching experience for this or viewing experience for this movie was that I went back and watched the first five movies in the weeks leading up to the release of Fallout. And I think it was good because I think I hadn't ever even seen the second one, which, I mean, huh. not really the best or probably the worst one of them. But, I mean, I, at least I wanted to be able to say I saw them. I actually don't think I'd ever seen that one. I'd seen most of the others but just couldn't really remember them all that well because I, I could remember four and five, but I couldn't remember the first three really, and I don't think I'd ever seen the second. So I was refreshed. Which isn't, that, which isn't necessarily a huge problem, right? Like you said, this is the first direct sequel, and even though they kind of build on each other, it's not vital to have seen the first couple of them to sort of understand this one if you have seen the previous right. one. Right. Did, did, I, I saw on Letterboxd you rewatched a few coming into this, but like the first, but not the not the most recent ones, maybe. Yeah. So at this point, I've actually seen the first four, but okay. by the time I walked into Fallout, I'd only seen the first two. Well, you'd seen them. You, just, you mean recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen all of them at yeah, some yeah, point, yeah, yeah. but I did the same thing you did. I just didn't quite catch up all the way until I saw Fallout. And that's why I think it might have actually helped you because I think there are certain beats that these movies hit repeatedly, which, I mean, taken in isolation, it's fine, it's exciting, but uh, there's only like so many times that you, I think you can watch like Ethan hang on to like a building top or a roof or any random like a car or anything by like a fingertip. And or fiercely or, sprinting through a big city, yeah, across I, I, some I, I big landmarks. Oh, I actually like that. It's it's, oh. it's it's fun to look at the different scenery. I like, so I think that's a little different. But there's always something where a timer is going to run out. There's always something where he's doing something maybe against the timer more directly, and all of a sudden he has a setback, and then all of a sudden he recovers from the setback. We don't even see the total, whole recovery. And there's certain moments like that where it's like almost like, ah, I get it. This is what you're doing. I just kind of laugh it off, as opposed to maybe like being like as intensely into it as they might want because i feel like i've seen it all before but that being said like i I still really really enjoyed this movie and i might even say it's the best one uh just because all the action was done so well and i thought the story maybe held together better than a few of the others that are also really good so i really liked it what did you think 
Uh, second best for me. Okay. I still prefer Ghost Protocol, actually, just because I don't think no matter how many crazy stunts they do in these movies, you simply can't be Tom Cruise climbing up the Burj Khalifa um, with malfunctioning magnets and almost falling off. I think that was still the best action piece they've ever done uh, in the Mission Impossible franchise. And actually, we watched it two days ago. Okay. And that movie, to me, uh, holds up better as a complete package. It's also a bit shorter. Um and I kind of like what they did with Jeremy Renner's character in that one. So yeah. the Ghost Protocol still takes the top spot for me. But yeah, this was undoubtedly an incredibly well-made movie. Some fantastic action scenes. Um, kind of like that Tom Cruise is reflecting a little bit that he's getting older. So some of those setbacks you mentioned earlier. Um, you see some more of those, right? Like the pat- punches don't bend quite as hard anymore. There's this, there's a moment in the bathroom fight where he just is uh-huh. like, oh, exactly. really? I got to do this? Like you can see it on it. You can like see that they're actually giving him that moment instead of just making him a total machine. Though you are essentially a machine if you can do all the things he does in this movie, do all the stunts, and be. I mean, he. I guess he broke his ankle during production. I, I you might have seen that, and mm, so yeah, that's, that slowed him down a little bit. So, not that he's like invincible, but like he's still able to do all of this stuff himself. Taught himself how to fly a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Did this. Uh, did whatever certification he needed for the Halo jumping uh yeah so it's insane that he still does all this stuff and i agree that i think the dubai entire dubai sequence in ghost protocol is uh pretty incredible and mm-hmm. I, I don't know like there are other parts of that movie though where it's like i i don't know I, I it's it's almost like i have trouble remembering the rest of it even though i saw it three weeks ago i know i guess there's a scene in the kremlin i think or yeah which i thought kremlin? was really cool i'd actually totally forgotten that they do that thing with the with big the screen. screen where they put it in the middle of the corridor and the security guard looks down and doesn't see them walk slowly down and before i saw fallout i would have said him crashing the car in that parking garage like nose first would have been too ridiculous but now i can't even say <laughs> yeah, that right. when he's like crashed a helicopter and walked away from it so it's like i just got to suspend my disbelief and be like yeah people can survive these things I guess so. Uh, so, yeah. so going into this though, it, what did you think of the fact that they did it as a sequel? Like, did you like it? Did you think that it, it built a bot in, in like the effective ways? I'm assuming you do think so, since you said it might be the second best movie. So, what did you think? Like, this is the first ever movie to have repeat directors for the franchise, and the first ever movie to actually be basically a sequel. What did you think of that change from the rest of the franchise? It's kind of a logical progression, I think, at this point, because the last three movies have been very critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, the audiences seem to love it. So they're kind of getting to a point where they're doing things a little better almost, I would say. So the fact that the action scenes have become a little bit more state-of-the-art. I, 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 I like that uh, I, they, they brought Ilsa back uh, because they mm-hmm. really hadn't done that before with the other female characters that were in other movies, even uh, Re- um, uh, Rebecca, or is it uh, shoot, Michelle Monaghan. Michelle Monaghan, yeah. Even, even she didn't come back after the third one because she had to go into hiding. Uh, they never really brought back a female character, and like it's really cool to have a, one that's not just there to um, be a love interest or a member of the team, like someone that's as equal, which I think uh, Christopher McQuarrie said is like really important to them. So I thought it was cool that she came back. And even if it's kind of murky why she's there, it's like, and they keep it a secret, and you don't really know what she's doing and how she's able to just find them everywhere where they do. Like, I like her enough that it's still fun having her around and that they brought her back and actually uh, used her in a way that was like pretty relevant to having us get to know Ethan better. And not that like I want the female characters to be reduced to someone there just to like 
help me understand the male character better, but like, I yeah, think right. she, she has enough going for her on her own. And, and, and while that shouldn't be the way you use female characters in movies, like we needed to get to know Ethan Hunt a little better. Cause if there is a weakness from those previous two movies, it's that I don't think he really had much personality. And I think that's one thing that maybe, and maybe part of it was that they could were able to build on a sequel and made it easier to do that. But I felt like we actually got more to learn more about his motivations, you know what I mean? And, and learn about him as a person where he had literally just become like a machine in four and five. And I think the other thing that's kind of critical about making this a direct sequel is that you actually have the same villain again, because I think that's also a bit of a weakness of that franchise. I just watched Mission Impossible 3 a few days ago, and as great as Philip Seymour Hoffman is, he's really underutilized. You don't really see him a lot, and people always talk about how dangerous he is, but there isn't really much of an opportunity for him to show off that. And the same thing is also true for that Swedish nuclear scientist in Ghost Protocol which is the one thing that kind of bothers me about that movie. His plan is incredibly dangerous and adds a lot of uh, a lot of stakes to what Ethan Hunt and company get up to. But you really don't see him that much either. And really his only longer appearance is in the parking garage at the end. Right. So the fact that they got Sean Harris to come back um, kind of lends his organization a little bit more... Um, a little bit more menace than it would have had otherwise. He's somebody who's still around and still trying very hard to... Um, cause chaos in the world. I, I have an embarrassing kind of, confession in that for the first 45 minutes or so, I'd say, of uh, Fallout, I didn't realize it was the same guy from oh. <laughs> because of the beard. Because yeah. in, in, in Rogue Nation, he's like the most clean cut, and he seemed taller. Maybe it's just because the beard makes you seem stouter. I don't know. But like he looks so different with that beard. He did not look like the same person at all. And I was like, why do they keep talking about him like I should know him? And it Even though you had seen Rogue Nation? I'd seen, it, I'd seen it like a week before, and I guess I just forgot the guy's name. And yeah. it's like – on land. Yeah, so my, my more on me than the movie. Like, I mean, the movie, if – I mean – should you should be able to pick people should be able to pick up on that and they, they're still talking about the syndicate and everything it's just like looked like a totally different person i just like didn't pick up on it for like the longest time and once they're like it was mainly like once they're like oh ethan you're you're the one that arrested him i was like oh okay i get it now but like very <laughs> very embarrassing that that went over my head but i feel like i should confess it nonetheless yeah right and at the same time of course they do focus a lot on some of the other um i guess villains in the movie so I wouldn't even say that Sean Harris takes as much of a role as he does in the previous one, but obviously he's still the one pulling the strings in the background. So mm -hmm. it's good that they got him uh, to come back, and it kind of adds to that overarching um, storyline that they've created for Rogue Nation and Fallout now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is kind of interesting that he's, like you said, for a movie without, like, a, it really doesn't actually have, like, an active, like, this is the bad guy for... I mean, basically, like an hour and a half of the movie. I mean, uh -huh. it's kind of interesting. I didn't, hadn't even really thought about it in that way. How there's not like a present specific villain for so long. Like we were, we're learning about him, but he's in handcuffs for like the entire time until we actually learn who any of the other bad people are. I mean, we th like we're, we're we you have who we think is Lark at the beginning, but like that guy is just a he's there to fight, and that, that bathroom scene is pretty amazing and has like oh, yeah. a, has a different feel, I'd say, than just about any of the other extended action sequences we've seen in the last few movies i as far as just the, not just the amount of hand-to-hand -hand comment but that they do it in such a small space uh mm -hmm. it's really cool and then it i don't know if you had any other thoughts on that but i mean it leads right into the, the vanessa kirby stuff which, and i thought she was a lot of fun too oh yeah definitely i was gonna say you don't really get the sense from her that she is necessarily the villain she has a very similar presence to max 
did in the first movie, and she's actually referenced. Uh, it's, her, it's, her, it's, her, it's her mom. I missed that the first time too. Oh, is it actually her mom? She okay. says that my, my mother, uh, and starts talking about Max, and yeah, so it's kind of like an Easter egg dropped in there, which I didn't get the first time. Again, another thing I missed, but I, I think most people probably would have missed that one. Uh, yeah, um, unless they have done the same thing we did and rewatched the movies very close to yeah, it's all, and, and, I saw and the, then it's all blur yeah yeah and i saw the first mission impossible a couple of months ago already so uh, this whole thing has been a big build-up for me and also vanessa redgrave's like 50 years older than uh vanessa kirby i'm pretty sure so yeah, that's true. it's like uh maybe not maybe should have been the grandma instead of the mom but whatever uh but yeah so but like that is a fun scene in the first one when he first encounters Max and he's like surprised she's a woman and they're feeling each other out. And it's kind of mm-hmm. the same, kind of the same thing here where, I mean, uh, she's like very, very taken by him. And, but at the same time, like they're having to escape a bunch of assassins. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun scene. Yeah. And you get the sense that she doesn't necessarily rely on him for protection. She is somebody who has a lot of things figured out as well. And you can never quite tell whether she's actually a step ahead of him right. or, if she's really needing him uh, yeah, to get her out of this place. Because she seems kind of like uh, um, a surprise when all those assassins are there, but then she's like right back in control of everything when they get back to her house. Yeah, and they do all of those negotiations for the uh, nuclear warhead, and she dictates the terms, and Ethan doesn't really have much of a choice to play along, even though it requires him to do some things he really would rather not be engaging in. Well, it does, but... Then apparently in like 12 hours, they put together one of the like the most amazing plans that involves Ethan having like the knowledge of Paris of like a Garmin all in his brain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, 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 did, what did you think of the entire Paris sequence? Because it was like, I think it's like super, super fun to look at and you just oh, shouldn't, sure. and then you just don't think about it too much. <laughs> yeah. And I was watching this movie actually with my dad, who's a huge fan of the franchise. Yeah. And um, the one thing he said was, he thought that scene went on for a little bit too long. First, he's on his motorcycle, and then they get into the truck, and there's another chase sequence. So you're right. It is all very well planned out, but it also just kind of repeats and repeats. And I love Paris as a location, no doubt about that, but it just really took a while to get from point A to point Z in this entire sequence. And then, he, and then, he, and then just the, the fact that, like, I mean, it I don't know. I couldn't get over the fact that it went over so long. There were so many turns and it's like, Oh, I just happened to end up right next to this thing that we know is like a, we can cut a hole in it and drop a thing off in a boat. Like it was so oh, yeah. convenient and easily panned. And like, I, I don't know what the line is where it's like, what's a legitimate nitpick of one of these movies and what you just have to accept. But that was like the one part I was like, all right, he just ends up getting like, I, I know he was already close there to begin with when he gets hit by the car, but it's like, it's just like perfect that they're able to like, get to that exact point while driving against traffic for like what feels like 25 minutes and all of a sudden it works out perfectly i was like okay sure yeah and then of course you have ilsa showing up and then you have that policewoman showing up who doesn't really know what she's doing and everything kind of resolves itself very conveniently for them well worked out interestingly enough because like that's the impetus for like Ethan has to kill those guys so he can not have an innocent life on his hands with the police uh-huh. officer because that was the whole point of going throughout all that trouble. And I guess it makes sense since uh, she already knows that – or since White Widow already knows that – after Ilsa takes a shot at Lane, so she – so White Widow knows she's after him. So because Ethan's taking out those four guys, like White Widow assumes it's Ilsa. So that's what kind of sets them up to like be going against each other, at least initially, where he has to like – they have that showdown, which is actually kind of a cool scene where the, like, she's like following him throughout Paris. Uh-huh. Uh, I actually kind of like that. Yeah, 
And I do think that what you just mentioned about him having to shoot those guys, there is an interesting undertone throughout the entire movie where Ethan is kind of challenged to evaluate whether he is somebody who is willing to get his hands dirty in order to get things accomplished. Because he's one of those guys who has never really uh, put innocent lives in harm's way. He's always really taken pride in that. And the fact that he has gone through such lengths to keep his wife safe as well, Mm -hmm. um, kind of putting her over his own interests. So I think that there was a whole lot of interesting stuff that they were doing there with him and the Henry Cavill, char- well, Henry Cavill well, character, well, obviously. And also, that's like a common theme throughout the movie, though, where like Alec Baldwin is telling him that, like, yeah, you do some crazy shit, and I, it's like the idea that he's just like awesome enough that like he can take the effort to like make the harder decisions to like save one person as opposed to doing what might in theory be good for the best for the greater good because he's awesome enough and can accomplish enough impossible tasks that he might be able to double back and do that so Mm -hmm. alec baldwin's like i've never really had to worry about the little guy not being taken care of because you do that and in theory it might not be the smartest thing to save luther and let some plutonium go to the wind but yeah you think so right but like ethan is amazing enough at his job and enough of a badass that like he'll probably save the day anyway so he can afford to make those choices in the short run and i i don't know one of my least favorite tropes though is uh when uh, in not even in just these movies but even like in superhero movies where we have to like go through the motions of a lot of people that are in theory good guys thinking that the superhero is actually a bad guy and then the superhero proves them wrong uh, i mean yeah it's a, like a common theme in something like 24 too where it's like, we like a lot of times people always thought like jack bauer was like out had switched sides or something he's like it's like no he's jack bauer he saved the world 10 times why do we have to do this and we almost go that we almost think we're gonna have that here and then they kind of fake you out but so I kind of liked that it seemed like they finally just like actually had the amount of faith in Ethan that he deserved, and that's a, it's a little misleading in the trailer because you're hearing the thing where it's like I think it's a voiceover of like Henry Cavill saying like how many times has his country turned to back on him, and I mm-hmm. that set me up to think that it was going to be that story again. So it was like a pleasant surprise where it's like. I mean, even though it seems like Angela Bassett might be wanting to pull him out a little sooner, it's not because she thinks he's a bad guy. It's because she just like wants to do things her own way. Yeah, and you're right. That's actually something that. Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol both did. It's been a while since I've seen Rogue Nation. I haven't quite caught up on that one yet. But in Mission Impossible 3, um, about halfway through the movie, Lawrence Fishburne, who is heading up the IMF in that one, mm-hmm. uh, thinks that Ethan Hunt went rogue. Right, so right, he sends right. people after him. And then in the fourth one, the entire IMF gets disavowed because they were supposedly responsible for destroying the Kremlin. Right. So once again, they have to operate um, without authorization by the U.S. government. So that was kind of uh, getting repetitive as well. And here you kind of go in the same direction again. But then they actually take a step back. Um, yeah, we can, find- we can get into the spoilers now because this is exactly where it happens. So I think mm-hmm. any, anyone else that's listening now, like, we're going to spoil it now, but go see it. It's an awesome movie. If you're still waiting on your movie pass, make sure you go as soon as movie pass lifts the ban. But uh, uh, you think, like I said, you think they're going to do that when Henry Cavill like starts trying to run down the list of things he's done. And that's uh-huh. even before we know that Henry Cavill is actually Lark. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess in theory what he's saying makes sense and whatever. I guess we're going to head down this road. And, and, then, and then they don't do it. Uh, yeah, so- then Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin shows up and he gives Ethan his angry spiel about how it seems very obvious, everything considered, that Ethan must be Lark. Mm-hmm. Ethan, don't make this difficult on yourself. I'm bringing you in. And then Ethan It'll be tranquilizes you him. just come quietly. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, great, now they're going to do that again. And I was actually kind of impressed that they decided to uh, 
avoided this time. I wasn't expecting that. I was, a, genuinely surpri- I was genuinely pleasantly surprised. Yeah, they, they did that off screen whenever they planned that whole entire thing. Same, same with like when they planned the extraction of Lane. Like they do a lot of big things off screen, but it doesn't necessarily feel like they're cheating us. It's just like there's only so much. The movie's already two hours and 30 minutes long. So it's nice that they can like have these other side plots that eventually come to fruition. And mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, okay, that's cool that's, that they pulled that off, you know? So yeah, it's I, the same I, I thing wondering. at the big. And it's the same thing at the beginning too, right? Oh, with, right. Uh, Wolf Wolf, with yeah, yeah. with Wolf Blitzer, exactly. Uh, Rome just got destroyed, and I don't know what the other cities were. It was Jerusalem and uh, all right, Jerusalem was one, and then one of the was it one, some other Muslim capital? Uh, it was like three, obviously, like the head of the main Catholic place, main Jewish place, and one of it was some other, maybe it was somewhere in India. I don't know, some big Muslim, yeah. Buddhist place or something like that. Yeah, right. And I honestly wasn't sure for a while whether that was actually fake or not. I thought that was. Kind of an interesting way to start things off that, oh, it looks like Ethan's decision uh, to save Luther over getting the plutonium back already had really dire consequences. Well, wow, yeah, that's we, awful. We, yeah, we actually did. We, so we didn't talk about that first scene. And I actually kind of figured it out uh, when he like is doing the thing where he's like, oh, uh, I, give me 10 minutes with him or something like that. I was like, that, yeah. does, that, 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 that sounds like something that's like from a lesser movie. So that's mm-hmm. when I kind of caught on. But it was still like pretty well done in that like, I don't think the bad guy would know that that's in this actually in this world as opposed to me, the moviegoer. So I kind of liked how they pulled that off where it was like I could kind of tell where it was heading, but like it was still pretty believable in its own right. Yeah, I mean the one uh, thing where it became incredibly obvious was when he asked for his manifesto to be read on air. And then five <laughs> seconds later, Wolf Blitzer gets handed the manifesto and starts reading it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Okay, like they cut some corners there. But yeah, that was a very enjoyable scene too. I always kind of like to see... What, whatever, uh, whatever builds into the opening credits is always usually pretty fun. Exactly, yeah. And I, and why, but, I, but I also did like that first scene where like they're waiting to get the plutonium. Mm-hmm. And like he's joking around with Benji. And there's like saying, oh, I'm not scared. He's like, you get scared? He's like, I don't get scared. And he's like, yeah, that's impossible. You can't like, you can't like get scared and then whatever. Like they're having this whole little fun debate about that. And like, I thought that was like more fun personality and more fun banter than we'd seen from Ethan in like three movies, you know? So I I don't think we'd ever seen him that relaxed since basically like the beginning of three. So yeah, right. When he's uh, with his his engagement party with his wife. Exactly. So like, I, I thought it was fun that they were able to like always let that side of him come out a little bit at least at that point like obviously things get serious after that but i don't know still pretty fun and it's something you do need to acknowledge from time to time too because ethan hunt always strikes you as the kind of character who's essentially fearless he can survive anything um the types of stunts that he does makes you think that nothing terrifies him anymore mm-hmm. so just the acknowledgement that what they do is incredibly dangerous and that some of his team members are constantly anxious about the missions they get themselves into it's important to acknowledge that there are very, very real stakes to what they do. Yeah, especially because it's like once that, once the uh, that whole entire thing becomes a fake out in the opening sequence, it's like, what are we fighting about again? Because uh, mm-hmm. that that's the one thing I had a little trouble following was like in, in trying to, and then you, you you almost get lost like remembering what the stakes are when you're trying to remember who's on whose side because it's a little murky yeah. because White Widow's just a broker. So at first I was like, wait, how did they get the plutonium eventually at the end? Because she hands over that first one to him as like a show of good faith, mm-hmm. but then at the end like they have that stuff in cashmere. I was like, wait, when did they ever get it from her? But I realized yeah. it was the apostles that stole it initially in that opening scene they ambushed that transaction and so they have it the whole time they're just kind of giving it to her as the middleman and that's why she has that one so they have it all later it's just like she's in this weird position of like being a middle person so i was like a little confused at once i started thinking about it too much and i was like 
wait, like, so who was handling the plutonium the whole time? What was she doing if she was actually working for the U.S. government? And uh-huh. I thought about it a little too much, but it's like, you just got to remember, like, these guys, they just want to, like, push it up. And that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, yeah, and- because I was also struggling a bit with Angela Bassett's character, because for a while I was wondering, so how exactly does the IMF fit in with the CIA again? Like, who is actually They're, they're, just, oh, they're, they're just always battling it. And I guess Baldwin was in charge of it in Rogue Nation, right? And that's why he's telling Ethan, I came over because of you. And yeah, so exactly. He, he went from the CIA to the IMF, but now I guess they share a bunch of resources with them, so they're arguing about that plane at the beginning before they do the jump. Uh, so yeah, yeah, which is something I, I mean, obviously it's not really a big issue in the grand scheme of things. That's not what those movies are about. But it was a little challenging at the beginning to really understand. Okay, so who is exactly calling the shots here? Right, and uh, eventually it's like there, there is always that debate a lot in these movies, and eventually it just ends up being. All right, we're on our own, guys, because that's what Ethan's, Ethan's like, like. Before they go to Cashmere, Ethan's like, we don't no idea who he's even like with who. Because when they yeah. a, after they have the reveal about Henry Cavill and Lark and all that stuff, all of a sudden it's like it sounds like Angela Bassett is sending the CIA in to like bring them all back, but they've like all been infiltrated by the apostles. And then when when Ethan is doing his run all the way across London to catch Henry Cavill, mm-hmm. he's like. Uh, I'm getting followed, and Benji's like, "Who am I? Who are you being followed by?" He's like, "I don't know. They're apostles or CIA. It's like all the same thing." So while it, yeah, it is like, kind of weird. It's like who's calling the shots? Eventually, it gets stripped down to just the four of them. It's like, all right, I guess we got to do this themselves. I mean, they uh-huh. still have plenty of resources somehow, even if like they really don't even know who they can trust. Like they're still able to get themselves to Kashmir, and they have transportation oh, yeah. and they have weapons and all that because that's just normally taken care of, I suppose. But uh, but yeah, yeah ev- I, eventually, I, it's just I kind them. of. A- I kind of abandoned that question in Ghost Protocol, actually, because they, they just, get disavowed very early on. And then but they, they have still that whole drive, train full of stuff. Yeah, they still drive up to that uh, party in India with this ridiculously expensive <laughs> state-of-the-art car. And I keep thinking, how did they get that car? They clearly didn't buy it. They didn't have money anymore. So well, they, well, they, they they, no, because in, in Ghost Protocol, they get put in that train that is like <laughs> the secret train compartment. Yeah. So maybe they had a bunch of money in that, too. And that was just like the last of their supplies and it probably had some money i guess was that that was but it's like they they were fine but they were, they were kind of on their own and um it's just weird because like everyone's like man this movie ended like three times but like mm-hmm. but i mean at least it like actually got to like a i mean pretty damn impressive sequence and uh i thought it was pretty like i mean it was very intense obviously the helicopter scene and all that but mm-hmm. i thought the stuff with um, with uh, Ethan and um, Michelle Monaghan was uh, pretty moving as well. Like, I mean, she doesn't get a lot to do, but she does a lot with her face, I'd say. Yeah, and I also like that they didn't just forget about her because after the third movie, you almost got the sense, eh, let's just stop giving Ethan Hunt a personal life because that's not really what people are interested in. So we just, we'll just sort of pretend the Michelle Monaghan character never really existed. Sure, she briefly shows up. She's briefly acknowledged in Ghost Protocol. But this is the first time we actually really get to see her in an extended role again. And yeah. I like that they picked that back up. It's interesting because, like, in th- a very simplistic way of looking at it, which I had always kind of thought was, like, he, like, lied to her until, like, the end of the third movie. Uh-huh. And now, like, because of that, because he never disclosed what she what he was to her before when they started dating, he's literally caused her to, like, have to live this, like, life of secrecy. And yeah. I was just like, man, it's so weird that, like, I guess, yeah, she's happy that he looks after her, but, like, it's weird that she wouldn't just be like, screw this guy, you know? Yeah. And it, it's in, it, it, it was so surprising to me that she was like, one, like, she knows it's bad when she sees him there, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, like, so much is said in that scene where they're talking about, like, 
oh yeah doctor friend that i used to know and her husband her husband <laughs> is like okay sure and but there's so much more going on on their faces but eventually mm-hmm. then they have that other moment where it's just like i mean hey like i'm or at the in the last scene i guess where it's like hey this is like what i was meant to be doing and it gives even though she's only in basically like probably has like 15 minutes of screen time like she gets her her whole arc where we kind of get to learn where she's coming from within that and it's kind of fun that they were able to trojan horse that into this thing Mm -hmm. and it's a nice conclusion for the character too because you almost get a sense that um michelle monaghan passes the baton on to rebecca ferguson who i'm sure who's going to show up in the next mission impossible which i've no doubt is going to be made and um she's sort of going to well, yeah, yeah. And just going forward, I expect. And it's nice that they got to do that handoff a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I guess she was her own thing before because, like, she, like, I've heard, like, like I said it earlier, I've heard Chris McQuarrie talk about how, like, that was their goal with Rogue Nation was to, like, introduce someone who was Ethan's equal. And she was as far as, like, a secret agent that can do badass stuff. But exactly. And in, in Rogue Nation, I guess you, you said you haven't watched, like, it was implied a little bit that there was, like, a romantic connection between them where she, like, gives him the option at the end, like, you can do you can turn me into mi6 or your people or you can uh do this or we can run away together and she just says that out of nowhere where there hadn't really been a whole lot of um romantic hints up until that point in the movie and then it doesn't really they don't really get back to that and then now i don't know if it's implied that something happened with them between movies i guess there maybe is a little bit but like at the same time it's not so much that he doesn't feel uncomfortable running her over with the car uh so so it's a weird thing they have between them but i think at the end when she's like fawning over him in the bed at the end it's like oh so they're like it looks like maybe they are that kind of they do have that kind of relationship and that would be a new thing for ethan going forward to like have that component in one of these movies where it's not just like he's like i guess he does he he is romantically hooks up with uh thandy newton in two but like Uh that's that whole thread is dropped because she's not there in the next movie. So yeah. if they want to keep this continuity going as opposed to what they did for movies one through five, then like that'll be an interesting thing where it's like he's not just lying to his wife like he is in three. Like he's actually like has a someone that he legitimately cares about in that way out in the field with him, which would be an interesting spin for them to try and keep things fresh, which they've done a good job of for these last three movies when they've kind of aside from just like having to come up with more ridiculous set pieces. Right. And it's also, uh, it's going to be something else that would set it apart from the James Bond franchise, for example, because they're notorious, of course, for introducing a love interest and then dropping her in between movies and then a new love interest gets introduced. Yeah, and I, guess... I think it just makes more sense for Mission Impossible as a fairly continuity-driven franchise to actually acknowledge that love interests might stick around for longer than just a two-hour plot in a movie. Yeah, that, I... I agree. Um, and I guess the last thing is you mentioned you're, you're sure that there's going to be another one of these. And I would think so too, because Liam Neeson's still making action movies and he's like yeah. 66. And uh, I'm sure Tom Cruise is going to look at that and be like, hey, if he can do it, I can do, I can do it too. So I guess the next, I mean, I guess the, the, the times between these movies have like progressively gotten shorter. Like the first one came out in 96, the second one in like 2000. Well, then they took like seven years off between two and three because that's when Tom Cruise is going through some of his weird shit with yeah. the Scientology and all that. And then I guess there was like four years between three and four and then – or maybe five years between three and four. 
and then like only, but then only four years between those two, and then three huh. years between these two most recent. So they might even ramp it up even sooner because I don't really know if Tom Cruise has anything left on his plate after doing the Top Gun sequel. And he might be like, if I'm going to do more crazy stunts, like I need to do it before I'm I'm too old. But at the same time, it'd be cool to be like, oh, he's a 60 year old and he's doing all this crazy stuff. So I guess we can agree like there might be at least one more. Um, presumably, like if it's not Christopher McQuarrie directing again, I would assume. Probably Doug Lyman because they're like the only two directors that he works with. You know, he did um, American Made with them, right? American Made and Edge of Tomorrow. Christopher, Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie wrote Edge of Tomorrow, but Doug Lyman directed it. So it's like if he wants to get another one of his guys a chance to do one of these movies, and Chris McQuarrie is like, I'll hand it off to someone else. Probably Doug Lyman. I think for the most part, Doug Lyman makes really good movies. So uh-huh. I'd be excited about that. But yeah, so I mean, it sounds like we both uh, we both really enjoyed it. I think it's I would hopefully like it's they bring the game back together, including Ilsa, like we said, we think they would because I just think it brings out a different side of him and that they got to in this movie. And my thing with Tom Cruise is that like he's kind of fallen into that mode in for a lot of this decade, for a lot of this century, where he's just like not playing as much of a real person being more of an action star than like a real actor with periodically cool performances like collateral or tropic thunder sprinkled tropic in thunder, yeah and i don't know like i'm I, i'm fine if he wants to keep doing these because these are so well done and it'd be cool if it's just they can add some extra elements to that and then he can just go off and try and make like the same movies he kind of movies he did in the 90s again when he's in his whenever he's too old to jump jump across buildings you know <laughs> Yeah, and Mission Impossible is turning more and more into a very reliable cash cow because I think a big reason why you had these big gaps between movies in the past is because the franchise always kind of reinvented itself between movies. Mm-hmm. But now you've gotten to a point where it's in a fairly safe place. Um, a lot of the movies are fairly similar to each other. So it shouldn't be too difficult to churn out another one in two or three years. And it, it really is worth reemphasizing that Tom Cruise, being 56 years old, is 100% convincing in this part. There was absolutely never a moment where I thought, yeah, he might be getting a bit too old for this. This is no longer believable. Well, like we touched on earlier, they, they, they give those glimpses of him feeling tired, which mm-hmm. I think is important for it to feel more realistic and convincing. Right, but these are just very brief acknowledgments. For the most part, the guy is still going full speed for two and a half hours here. What did which, you, th- you think of Henry Cavill overall and like giving him like, uh, like a, a bad guy that like is just as physically imposing as him in his performance? Because, I mean... I think he's an actor that's I don't been had ups and downs in his career given the reception to the Superman movies. Yeah, and that's unfortunately what he's usually being reduced to those movies. And I've actually followed his career for a while. I watched all four seasons of The Tudors. Okay, I never did watch that. Yeah, I mean he was a pretty integral player in that one, and he gave a solid performance. And he also was in. Uh, the Man from Uncle, right? Yeah, that was a fun movie. I watched it on a plane. It was a good plane movie. I don't uh-huh. I mean, I know he. So I guess Army Hammer played the Russian in that, and then he played an American in that, I think, too, even though he's British. Uh-huh. Um, so, like, like he did here. So, I mean, that was a fun movie. And I got, so that made me optimistic when I heard he was going to be in this. I know a lot of people are like giving him crap because of like how ridiculous it is where like he reloads his punches in the bathroom scene with his arms oh, yeah. and that weird thing. But like, and then, of course, they had to cover up his mustache in uh, the Justice League movie because he was already growing out his beard from Mission Impossible, apparently. Right. That was like a big deal. I, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I thought his acting was a little weird. And maybe it's just because maybe maybe like I don't want to give him too much credit, but it's like he is kind of like playing a part when he's being the regular CIA guy. So maybe that's why it seems more unnatural. I don't know. Like when he and Ethan are going back and forth on the plane, 
I, I didn't know if I totally bought it as much, but like once he became straight evil, like I thought he was like even more convincing, which was kind of a funny turn of events since he's known for playing Superman, who's like the best guy ever, basically. So, yeah, and I don't think they did a very good job necessarily camouflaging that he was a bad guy because he always seemed pretty cocky in the beginning and he was somebody that they didn't want on the team to begin with. And even in the trailer, he already struck me. Uh, as a very sort of aggressive, violent guy who's essentially the anti-Ethan Hunt. So it only made sense that he was going to be a villain in the long run. So maybe I was just waiting for him to turn full-on evil throughout the entire movie. Hmm. So that's probably the part that he would always be better at uh, in this particular scenario. Yeah, I I feel bad I didn't catch it sooner because, I mean, like, on my second time watching it, he's, like, telling Angela Bassett, oh, now he can assume his full identity. Lark can assume his full identity with the full support of the U.S. government. So when you watch that again, knowing what's coming, it's like, wow, how did I not catch that the first time? Yeah, right. (laughs) It was more because, like I said, it made sense that someone would just think Ethan's the bad guy because it happens too often. And Uh so I was like, okay, sure, whatever. And then, like, oh, that's why. Um but yeah, uh, any other thoughts? Uh, good R.I.P. Alec Baldwin. Um, he, has, he, he, had, mean, he, had a, he had a nice send off, I guess. Yeah, and I wonder which uh, big actor they're going to get for the next one to play the head of IMF. They always get pretty big names for that particular part. So. Yeah, I really didn't like him in the last movie. I just that was a whole lot more of like us spending so much time in front of Congress. Um, that was a big part of Rogue Nation. It was like him and Jeremy Renner arguing in front of Senate or whoever about the IMF. It's like, look, we know the IMF's going to get to like do their thing. We know they're going to go off book. Like, I don't really feel the need to listen to Congress talk about it. And I got sick of Alec Baldwin in that. And I watched it again. It was actually wasn't as much of the movie as I thought it was. But here yeah. it was like he it was cool that he actually like kind of got to be on the team for like five minutes. So uh-huh. good, good for him. Yeah, and it was actually kind of funny because did you watch The Looming Tower by any chance, the TV show? No, but I think I've heard it's good. Yeah, and he played the CIA director in that one. So oh. <laughs> it's kind of interest. So it's kind of interesting that in the, uh, I don't even want to say the twilight of his career. He's actually been pretty busy the last year or two. So I guess this is the kind of role that he's going to get offered more and more these days. Yeah, he's only like four years older than Tom Cruise, so it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind right. of funny. Maybe I don't think Tom Cruise is going to be playing the CIA director in four years. Um, no, nope, not likely. But yep. Yeah, all right, man. Well, I think I think we uh, pretty much well covered it. I appreciate you joining me for this one. It's uh, and hopefully they uh, hopefully the franchise stays alive and well. Um, where, where can people find you on Letterbox, Fred? Um, on Letterbox, my uh, name is Fred Kolb. I post reviews pretty regularly, so uh, feel free to follow me. And I'm Josh Jernavoy on Twitter at J O S H J U R N O V O I. Same thing on Letterbox and. That's pretty much it. Stay tuned. We got plenty more coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, I think the next podcast will probably be on eighth grade and maybe Mama Mia too, if I find the right friends that have seen them. So stay tuned and keep listening. And thanks for tuning in.